0: This is the Bill Kelly Show Podcast.
1: Troubling news. Uh, A Hamilton temple is among many synagogues in four cities around the country right now that received anti-Semitic hate mail. Uh, I'd like to tell you this is an isolated incident, but apparently it's not. Joining us to talk about this is Gustavo Reinberg, who is the CEO for the Hamilton Jewish Federation. Gustavo, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today.
2: Good, good morning, Bill. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, I wish we were under better circumstances. Uh, could you outline for us exactly what happened uh, when, when Rabbi Cohen found this? Uh, I guess he didn't actually find it. I guess it was the staff of the synagogue that, that opened this letter.
2: Yes, I mean, this. Uh, all of this happened early this week. You know, unfortunately, it's not the first time that something like this happened in, in our community. Uh, it's creating a lot of panic in staff, a lot of insecurity. Uh, we're trying to, to to investigate this as deep as possible. We will try to find a, a, a response to this incident. Uh, unfortunately, four other cities are experiencing the same circumstances, uh, and and it's it's very it's very hard, you know. It's especially this time of the year and any day. It's it's really it's really difficult to deal with this uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, Declarations or expressions of anti-Semitism. Um, I don't know if you are aware, but the um, the, community, the, the Jewish community uh, is a number one target minority in Canada, and still, uh, the incidents are still uh, increasing. You know, we have stat- uh, statistics from the neighborhood of Canada. Uh, there were like 1,728 anti-Semitic incidents. Reported in 2016, what is an increase of 26% compared with 2015?
1: That's that's a surprising number to a lot of people. Uh, yeah, which, which indicates I would think that a lot of this probably goes unreported. I mean, you know, the latest incidents that have happened, not just here in Hamilton but in other cities, uh, are making national news. But uh, but I'm as, as I try to get more information about this, I find out that this happens sadly on a pretty regular basis. Abs- yeah, or or it. some sides, not necessarily letters like this, but but some form of of anti-Semitic uh, exactly. activity,
2: like like different kind of phone calls, graffiti, uh handwriting letters, or you know, it's 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 really difficult. We have a, a great group of uh, organizations working together, like the neighborhood, the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, the Police Department in Hamilton, uh, the Jewish Federation. We're all working together. To, to investigate the, the these isolated issues you know to make sure that you know the people feel secure and feel safe uh, but uh, but of course it's creating a lot of anxiety, a lot of discomfort and it's it's really, really sad to see these kind of things happening today. You know?
1: Police are investigating as you mentioned as they are in other cities right now. But uh, this has got to be disconcerting for, for the staff at the synagogue, but I think for the, as you mentioned, the greater Jewish community as well, to say, here we go again. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, the timing, obviously, as as the Jewish community, of course, celebrates Hanukkah, uh, is one element, but the fact that this happens on an ongoing basis, uh, you don't get numb to it, do you, Gustavo?
2: Well, I think that all, all our staff, you know, receive, like, security training very often. All the, the synagogue staff... Actually, the, the police department uh, last year offered some training for the, for different synagogues. We are sending uh, updating insecurities to all our organizations. Uh, not, all, not all the events are reported, but everyone feels secure that, you know, we have good organizations behind us to support us. But I think that the big problem here is, like, prevent these kind of things how we can prevent this, how we're going to educate the next generations, the actual generations, everyone, to make sure that these kind of things are not happening. And, go- and they are not conducing to anywhere. You know, it's like creating panic, creating uh, some anxiety, but we're still working. We're still doing our Jewish life. We're still celebrating Hanukkah. We are not stopping our Jewish life.
1: The numbers here, and you touched on on the national numbers, and it's 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 really distressing. Really, mm-hmm. seventeen hundred twenty-eight anti-Semitic incidents reported throughout the country. Uh, Jews the most targeted religious group when it comes to uh, hate mail and, and activities such as this, uh, closely followed by Muslims and of course Black Canadians. I guess what bothers me is. is as a Canadian, and, and, and it must bother everybody, and I hope it bothers everybody, is we look at our country as, as, a, as a, a giving nation, as a, an open-minded nation. You know, we, we welcome uh, the mosaic in this country. Uh, but we need, to, I guess, to not be blind to the idea that, that hate is still here, and, and, and these sorts of things, I mean, have to be addressed. And it is a black mark on, on us that these sorts of things are happening with more regularity than we like to think.
2: Hundred percent agree with you. Absolutely, it's it's a uh, as I as I mentioned before, it's really uh, discomforting. It's really sad to see that this is happening here in Canada. You know, a country that it's a model and it's a country that everyone is welcome. You know, and we are all living together. We try to live in peace, celebrating what we have to celebrate: different religions, different cultures. But unfortunately, this incidents, you know. Uh, still happen, and I think that we need more education and more uh, prevention about this, this kind of of art.
1: Well, you know, I, I'm trying to connect dots here, and of course we had the story about about some problems that were going on at the McMaster campus a couple of days ago, and some things that were circulating in that area, and now the letter, of course, that uh, that uh, the synagogue received, uh, uh, Temple Ansai Shalom received, uh, just yeah. a couple of days ago, and uh, and and it's it's very troubling. And I want I want to ask you about how locally this is being dealt with. I, I know that, for instance, after the horrific attacks of nine eleven, uh, that uh, even here in Hamilton, Mayor Bob Wade at that time, uh, struck a, a panel of 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 people from just about every walk of life and every community, every ethnic group, uh, to sit down on a regular basis and communicate and talk. And I, I think that was very helpful at the time, Gustavo do we still have a a, a mechanism like that to, to be able to get together and to talk about this and share information
2: yes a lot of things changed in the in the past couple of years you know we have a very strong uh, uh, jewish association in on campus in McMaster. it's called hillel and they they really are very active in dealing with this kind of uh, incidents and make sure that the, the the jewish students in particular and Actually, the entire the, the entire uh, students are feel safe on campus. They they are working very hard and they are working together with the administration. And again, as I mentioned before, with the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, that it's a national organization based in Toronto that is giving us a lot of support. And they they investigate everything and they are behind every anti-Semitic incident that's happening in Hamilton. We have. We we have uh, regular meetings and we are in contact constantly with the police the police department and we, we all the time we're in communication and we are we're making sure that um, we are aware of the of what's happening in the city. In the meantime, we have great conversations with all the, our um, different communities, uh, with uh, Muslim groups, different churches different organizations, that they are all working together for a better city, for a better world, for a peaceful environment, and uh, no more hate crime in the city or in the world, actually.
1: We talked about the national numbers. The Hamilton numbers are just as distressing, by the way. I know that Hamilton police have told us that, uh, uh, that uh, hate crimes against uh, the, J- the Jewish faith are uh, the most targeted of the religious groups here in Hamilton. And again, we we hear stories about uh, attacks on mosques and and temples and things of this nature, uh, but a lot of this stuff, I guess, doesn't make headline news. But it's there. I mean. It can be something as as troublesome as, as people kicking over you know tombstones in, in cemeteries or or mm-hmm. you know graffiti that's spray painted yeah. on the walls and in at temples and and things of this nature and, mm-hmm. and and like I say maybe we don't get that information but police certainly do. Let me ask you about that relationship between uh, between the police and and and. The, the Jewish community. Uh, do you feel as if they're being supportive or are they helpful in trying to and trying to first of all find out who's doing this and and help the community deal with it?
2: Absolutely, we we feel totally supported by them and yeah, no question about it. Yeah.
1: So you feel very comfortable about that. This by the way, this latest incident was reported to police, and I know they're, they're ongoing investigation.
2: Yes, but this incident, I mean, it's it, it, this is a very difficult one because it's happening in different places at the same time. So there's no indication that this is generated in Hamilton, or so we don't know yet. Uh, but I, I, I have 100% uh, uh, confidence in the police department and in all the organizations that are working with us in order to investigate, to solve this uh, this issue and and others that will come, unfortunately.
1: How do you view this, and, and how do you deal with this as, as, a, as a religious community? Uh, you know, when something is this, and I don't even want to get into the descriptor as to what was in there. I think it's, it's well documented. We talked about it on CHML News. But it's a very derogatory and, and in some people's minds, threatening uh, piece of information that, uh, that was there. Is it, is it troublesome? Is it, is it just something, a, a bothersome thing that's frustrating you? Or, I guess, is there a real concern here about public safety when you see something like this?
2: I, I don't know if it's concerning the public safety. In this case, I mean, it's really, really disappointed. It's really offensive to get this kind of emails and to see that this is happening. That's still happening. And um, what the goal is, it's unclear. But it's it's really it's really hard to see that. You know, as a as a minority group, you know, unfortunately, we are used to get this kind of of messages. It's a um, it's it's disgusting. It's really it's really it's really bad, and especially for young kids. You know how how you explain our kids these kind of things. That's that's a problem. And again, you know we don't like to see like uh, the the history coming back. You know, so uh, this, this is hate, and any kind of hate is not good. You know, I mean, there is no reason to do this. I mean, there is no uh, benefit in doing this, because I mean, well, in this case, it's it's very hard to identify where it's coming from, and I don't know if we will, but I mean, to receive these letters, to have this in the media in the time of the year that we're supposed to be talking about something totally opposite to this. It's about celebration, about living together, about a new year, new goals, peace, hope, to have this in the media right now, it's really disturbing. Now, I, unfortunately, I think that every Jewish person in his life faces a hate crime or faces an act of anti-Semitism. And it's really, it's, it's, it's really sad, as I, I mentioned before, to see this happening so often.
1: And you can't just sloth it off. You can't just pretend. Well, that's too bad. Let's just move on. I mean, when it happens on a consistent basis like this, I, I, I guess you have to be concerned—not necessarily about a, an imminent threat, but you know, is there going to be more vandalism? Does does this sort of activity embolden some other people to maybe carry on and do the same sort of thing? You, you really don't know where it's going to end.
2: We don't know, but we are we are uh, we are putting all our system our security systems in place. Again, like the, the police is investigating and is aware of the situation. Our uh, other organizations, the national organizations, are working with us. So we have, like, very, very uh, strong uh, security systems in place, and we will make sure that we're, we're guaranteed all, uh, all the safety possible.
1: As much as these numbers are troubling, and they are, and as, as these numbers are growing, and sadly they are, you must take some solace in the fact that you understand that the greater community, there is the, a, a bond and, and there is a, a, a fellowship uh, between religious groups, between ethnic groups in this country, and uh, we can't let that diminish uh, the, 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 what we already have here and the, how the community is behind you. And, and, Absolutely. Uh, and Absolutely. that's got to be, I think, a, a major factor in combating this and trying to deal with it.
2: Absolutely. The, the, the amount of messages and support that we are getting from other communities and other religious groups or other, co- other federations, is, it's, it's great and make us feel very, very good about this. Especially in Hamilton. We know that Hamilton is not behind this anti-Semitism act or hate crime. We know that it's a great city where we try to live all together in peace and with respect. You know, and we have great relationships with all the other
1: communities. Well, we'll add our voice to that support as well. We we certainly hope that uh, the police do find out what's going on here and who's responsible for this and and know that as as you celebrate Hanukkah and and Christians move into the Christmas season, uh, that we do have that sense of brotherhood and kinship, and uh, that's what makes us great and strong, and we want to carry that on too. Gustavo, thank you so much for the time today. Greatly appreciated. Thank,
2: thank you so much, and happy holidays. All the best for the new year.
1: And to you, too. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Thank G- you. Gustavo Reinberg, who is the CEO of the Hamilton Jewish Federation. And uh, it is uh, good to know that police are investigating this uh, with uh, great interest uh, to try to find out exactly how this is going on just locally but of course on a national basis.
3: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: This is uh, something that uh, we talked about a couple of days ago here on the program and yesterday when uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger was here for the Mayor's Town Hall we raised the issue and it had to do with the uh, re-evaluation of the Stelco lands which have been very controversial over the last number of years. We all know about the financial problems that U.S. Steel were having and what was going to happen with the lands, and we know that the provincial government got involved in it at one point and tried to broker a deal. Part of that was to set up a land trust, sell the stuff, and the profits from that were going to go to top up, among other things, the Stelco Pensioners Fund. Sounded like a win-win. Well, a funny thing happened on the way to the win-win. There was a reassessment by impact of those Stelco lands, and they have virtually said that they're worthless. I mean, it's $100 an acre. And I went from, I think it was $1,600, something like that. It's a ridiculous amount of money. Richard Brennan is going to talk to us about that. Richard, of course, uh, for many years, worked for the Toronto Star, covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill. Uh, he knows all about impact. He knows all about the things that have gone on here. And uh, wanted to get his insight as to what's going to be happening and what has happened and what caused this in the first place. Richard, welcome back to the show. It's good to have you with us today. Hey, y'all. How's it going? Excellent. Uh, you're a taxpayer here. Uh, in this area, this fine, uh, this municipality, this this metropolis of ours these days. Uh, so you've got you've got skin in the game here, like a lot of us do in this situation. You had to be shocked when you saw these numbers.
3: I well, as you point out, I have a vested interest in this because now you know I live in Dundas. But I'll tell you, I picked up the Spectator yesterday, and 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 saw the story that Speck did on the fact that this land had been reassessed from. You know, roughly a hundred and eight thousand dollars an acre. The stalker lands four hundred acres, or or four to five hundred acres, and now is worth a hundred dollars. And I said to myself, there is one word that describes this: stinks. This stinks beyond high heaven. There is something going on here, and I'll tell you, I my kind of my old reporter skills, uh. I have no other than being a taxpayer. I thought, well, I'll just start looking into this. And it really, there is something very, very wrong here.
1: Well, that's why when we uh, we talked earlier this morning, I thought, you know, I, I'm outraged by this. And I I think Richard, and you, you'd you already made phone calls. I mean, you've already started looking, you know, you're going through the contact list again, got yeah, talk to this guy, and to this guy. Yeah. Uh, and boy, I tell you, I guess the more information you get about this, Richard, the the, the greater the stink.
3: Well, the, the the thing is, and I, I saw I saw the uh, comments uh, today from uh, Ted McMeekin, yeah. and w- with all re- you know due respect to Ted McMeekin, you know all of a sudden they've discovered this land might be polluted. What? This land's been around for a hundred years, hasn't it? I'm shocked. Yeah. Oh gosh, <laughs> it's been pol- it might be polluted. Who does he think he's kidding? You think we've just all collectively fell off the turnip truck here?
1: I tell you, and what bothers me about this is, uh, I go back to city council to the late nineteen nineties uh, when I was first elected to city council, and that was just around the time that things like brownfield uh, p- policies were being developed, not just here in Hamilton, but I mean federally and and provincially. And I, I, I got to know a lot about that because we were kind of in on the ground floor, and obviously because of the lands that we had down in the old uh, you know Burlington Street area, and and. Yes, I understand that there can be contributing factors, Richard, to how you do an evaluation of a property, but there are levels of contamination, and there are also things I found out that everybody seems to know now that it depends on what you're going to put on that land. In some cases, if you wanted to make that residential and build playgrounds and, and things like that, which I don't think they want to do anyway, yeah, the contamination's a major factor. If you're going to put a warehouse there, not so much. So how can they actually use that as, as the contributing factor in this decision?
3: Well, th- this is a multi-pronged story, as you well know. First, first off, who stands to benefit from this? You know, the old the old adage in the newspaper business and elsewhere is "follow the money." Yep. Who stands to benefit from this? Well, it's certainly not the pensioners. I'll tell you that much, because Lanco, this uh, court, or court-appointed uh, group that's you know uh, tasked with selling off the property, now they've got. The, the pensioners have had another thumb stuck in their eye with with the, you know, specular reassessment that says, basically, this land is worthless. What? Worthless? Well, if you put that out there, people will blowball this land, obviously. And this money was meant to top up the pension uh, plan to help the folks with their health care, I think, uh, in a good part. So right away, that's been negatively impacted. The government, or the—I should say—the city of Hamilton has a vision for this property, and rightly so. They think this property can be developed in the next stage of, you know, a high tech that kind of thing. And it, it's a hundred—you know—if you scare people off, you know, who's going to buy? it. It's going to be scrap yards. It's going to be truck terminals, and this and the same old thing. And that's not what the city needs they need to build for the
1: future. I I, got to go back to the numbers again, because this is what I find frustrating. And I know the pensioners right now are probably apoplectic. They're thinking, wait a second, we were supposed to get some money out of this. And if they sell this at a hundred bucks an acre, uh, I don't even know if they can cover the the costs on, on, on the real estate transaction. I mean, it's ridiculous what they're asking them to do here. But this is, notwithstanding what Impact seems to think here, Richard, this is still a valuable property. Yeah, there's some contamination there, but it, it, it has water access. It has rail access. I mean, it's a very attractive piece of property. Uh, I know that the city knew that Impact was sniffing around here a few months ago and they tried to get an independent real estate uh, company to do an uh, an evaluation here uh, and they were still talking about 2 or 300,000 dollars an acre for this now i don't know if that's even accurate but to, to go from there down to 100 bucks an acre it's just it's unbelievable
3: well that's just it. it it is unbelievable and just to go back to what you said you know it if you it depends on what you want to put on the property and and uh, you know and the story today is uh, Blair Blanchard Stapleton a real estate brokerage, and he's saying the same thing you are. And when you buy this property, you build into your your price that you're putting forward that what it'll cost to remediate this land. But that you know that that's just the way you do business. If I if I buy something for two hundred thousand dollars an acre, and and I know. That it's going to cost me 50000 to remediate. Well, I adjust accordingly. So, you know, it, this suggestion that there's pollution on it is just absurd to say that, there. you know, it's not worth anything now. And I just want to give you a little information here that you may
1: not know. Yeah, I'd like to get that.
3: This is a... Something I, I uh, a good a good source told me that you know Ed Clark uh, he's the he's the a banker that the government he, he's uh, led the way on many major uh, programs for the government he, I think he's charging me a buck a year but Ed Clark he was for example he was uh, led the way for the government on the uh, sale of Hydro One and he's done other major projects for them but he's a smart dude anyway okay. he's, his his right hand man is an Alan and a former banker. And I'm told that he went to this, uh, told a city staffer months before this MPAC decision came down but that pro- that property's not, it's only worth about $100 an acre. He said that. It, and you've got to remember, Ed Clark is also handling the Stelco lands. He, he led the way up for the province and that. Mm-hmm. So, this, so this right-hand man says to city staffer oh, that property's not you know it's worth a hundred dollars well lo and behold doesn't impact come out with a hundred dollars and you know and we're told up and down that this is an independent organization that's you know not you know is not influenced by outside people well isn't that it's ironic that they would come up with the same figures he suggested months ago.
1: Well, and again, you have to ask the question, what's that number based on? I mean, did they actually do an environmental assessment? Do they know how contaminated the lands are? Because I know that the initial answer, impacts, being been pretty quiet about this, but the initial answer was, well, you know, we, we looked into the history of this, and we know that they tried to sell the lands a couple of years ago, and there were no takers on it, and that was at about $160,000 an acre. But you've got to think of time and place, Richard. I mean, that was right in the height of the court battle that was going on, the, the uncertainty there. no. Nobody's going to buy that because they don't know who they're dealing with at that stage.
3: Well, you know, I'm no property developer by any stretch of the imagination. But I tell you right now, there isn't a bigger chunk of property in all of southern Ontario that has more promise than this property right here. Nowhere. uh, That kind of property, you know, near the lake, near transportation hubs, available like this is right now so to suggest that it's worth a hundred dollars an acre is absurd to say the least
1: Especially when you consider what's happened with real estate, uh, any kind of land, not just here in Hamilton, but right across southern Ontario. I guess right across the country, but specifically here, because Hamilton was one of the, the real estate hotspots in 2017. And, and I said to the mayor, rather tongue-in-cheek yesterday, Richard, I said, if if they're right, if Impact's right, this is the only property in southern Ontario that's gone down in value in 2017. I, I, I can't understand where they're coming from.
3: But as you and I spoke this morning where who stands to benefit
1: well that's the question i think we have to ask at this stage and i know that some city councilors are asking for an investigation not an appeal because that's one of the other absurdities of the legislation with impact is that if you don't like what impact says or you don't like the evaluation they've done yeah you have the right to appeal but you appeal to impact the guys that already made the decision
3: yeah yeah that's uh... that also is an absurd way of handling it but you know the I know city. The city is going to appeal. Of course, they are, and they're saying that the city is saying, rightly or wrongly, that what MPAC did to come to the conclusion violates all their other uh, traditional methods of looking at land like this. They didn't look at a whole bunch of uh, influences and came up with this hundred dollars. You know, I, I, I'm not. I'm not throwing. You know, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus here, but. Let's face it, you know, the the uh, Hamilton Harbor is running out of land. So they could stand a benefit, but they probably need more land. I'm not saying that they influence this at all. I'm just saying that's the reality of it. They need more land. Well, and
1: they've been public about that, Richard. The Port yeah. Authority is already on record as saying, yeah, we're really interested in that if it becomes available.
3: Oh, absolutely. And and, and why wouldn't you be? I mean, it is valuable land, but to suggest that, Anybody's going to get this for $100 an acre is absolute craziness. I mean, it is going to go for far more, what we hope anyway. It's just the initial, to, to throw that $100 out is taints, even further taints that property. In terms of people's view of it, they'll say, well, geez, we were thinking about, you know, me building a maybe a high tech place on it, but God, you know, the impacts saying that this, you know, this land's only worth $100 and then we've got, you know, we've got Ted McMeekin saying, you know, it's, you know, it's all polluted and that. And it's, it, it could scare, you know, interested investors off. That's, that would be, that is my major concern.
1: Well, sure, it sends a message, but I, I, and this, by the way, just feeds the, the concern that I've had and 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 the, the the feeling I've had about impact ever since these guys started operating. And this goes all the way back to the mid nineteen nineties uh, when you know the Harris government decided about you know there was going to be reassessments every few years, and and maybe there was some merit in that, but the way in which they've done it, I think, is is rather disturbing. And I actually went to some of these tribunals, uh, Richard, back in the day when I was still on city council. I represented some people that were upset with the, uh, the assessment they got from IMPACT. And, and there was some, some justification for some of that upset. I mean, I, I can remember one example specifically going to a hearing. Uh, it was down at Hamilton City Hall. And uh, this is a guy who lived in one, you know, those row townhouses, nice townhouses. Yeah. Uh, and five of them in a row that are all the same. And th- they all had different values. I said, how could you do that? How, they're they're the same building. They all have three bedrooms. They all have the – they admitted they'd never been inside any of them, yet they just arbitrarily picked numbers. That's what they seem to be doing, but they get indignant when you challenge them on it. Just like the government, and and I saw Ted McBeacon's comments, uh, his indignance about how could you possibly say that we interfered? Somebody did. Maybe it wasn't the federal, or the provincial government, but somebody clearly stuck their nose in here. Because as you say, all of a sudden Impact changes their evaluation methodology and simply comes up with a number seemingly pulled right out of the air. Well, it's
3: I, mean, I wouldn't be at all surprised, quite frankly, if if the province starts looking into this itself, like the the Liberal government. You know, let's face it, when you're going into an election next June, you can't possibly have something like this hanging over your head because everybody, every person, every corner of Hamilton should be incensed over this. Just just like you know, like I am. I just I just figure that there's something rotten Here and it has to be uncovered i don't i don't know how you 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 go about that other than you know maybe investigating further investigating like myself or somebody else but it may require if the province doesn't review this doesn't look into it it may require some kind of like you know independent investigation because there is there are so many things wrong with this that it is open to all kinds of criticism.
1: And and I feel badly for the pensioners. We haven't heard from, from them specifically yet. Uh, but, I mean, the message is quite clear to them right now that uh, any hope that you thought and any help that you thought was going to come your way I just got quashed and and if this number stands because the city's just not gonna make any money from this and and you know the province I mean I can understand you know Ted McBeacon's uh, concern here that somebody's thinking that they they had their hand in this well maybe they didn't but the province should be upset about this because they're the ones that brokered this deal Richard
3: well you know conspiracy theorists aren't always wrong
1: (laughs) Uh, on that note, uh, <laughs> uh, we got to finish it off. But I, I keep digging on this, and and uh, that's that's why they called you the Badger. Uh, you are relentless, and I know that we'll we'll talk again about this in the days and weeks ahead. Thanks so much, Richard. Okay, Bill. Well, thanks. Bye bye. Richard Brennan, of course, uh, former journalist with the Toronto Star. Covering Queens Park, and uh, yeah, I know the city's incensed about this, and they should be. And somebody, somebody has to answer some some very pertinent questions about that reevaluation of those lands. You're listening to the
3: Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: Interesting times up in uh, the nation's capital uh, with uh, the visit uh, by Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. Uh, and uh, lots of photos, of course, I watched the coverage on Global News last night, but the, the overriding question is, well, is this really going to do much good for Canada-U.S. relations in the long term? John Iverson in the National Post writes about it today, tea with Tillerson is nice, but irrelevant to Canada-U.S. relationships. And John Iverson joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about that. Good morning, John. How are you doing today? Hey, Bill. How are you? Excellent. Top of the world. Uh, I, I get the sense, and I wanted to get your read on this, uh, from the meetings that they've had, I guess, in about the last year, uh, Tillerson and, and Christia Freeland seem to, act, act, seemingly anyway, have a pretty good relationship. But is, uh, what I guess, to what end, I guess, is the overriding question here?
0: Yeah, I mean, they, they uh, you know, first name terms, you know, the body language is all very friendly and, and they say all the right things. But the, the problem, as I see it, is that um, Tillerson seems to be on the outs with Donald Trump. Um, we remember the quote that Tillerson is alleged to have made about Trump, uh, and it wasn't complimentary. no. And uh, so the rumours in uh, in Washington are that he's he's either going to be fired or he's he's just holding on by the, the skin of his fingertips. Um, he was asked on Monday in, in a, a press uh, media availability, he brought out the French foreign minister, and the, the only question that was asked was, have you submitted a letter of resignation? At which point he said, that's ridiculous, and that was the end of the press conference. So nobody asked him that uh, yesterday in Ottawa, but, you know, it, it, things can be tickety-boo with uh, with Tillerson, but um, but he's not the guy who's, who's running the
1: show. As you point out in the piece, uh, on one level, uh, you know, the meeting yesterday looked like an overwhelming success and very encouraging to Canadians, because uh, they, they seem to talk about NAFTA in, in glowing terms. Uh, they seem to have this mutual uh, ambition to find a deal that was going to be best for both countries. Uh, and and then we you know we can get into the North Korea situation and you know the fact that they've they've firmed up this idea about uh, you know hosting co-hosting a summit on this, but you know Tillerson's been trotting around the world, John, as, for the last couple of months trying to find a diplomatic solution. His boss keeps reiterating that well, the time for talking is done. Uh so,
0: wasting his time. I mean, it kind of undermines. He's, he's, building,
1: goes to- he's building up air miles, but that's about it. Right.
0: I mean, so you know the North Korea thing. Um, is good. Uh, clearly, Canada has a role to play here. That the, the the event is being hosted in Vancouver. I don't think it's clear exactly who's coming yet, but uh, certainly the original combatants in the in the in the Korean uh, War of uh, fifty to fifty three, plus countries like Japan, Sweden, France were quoted. Um, I guess it remains to be seen whether China comes. Uh, all well and good, but it also remains to be seen whether Tillerson still going to be there. Um, if he is, I think uh, Canada has a role. It's certainly Justin Trudeau has uh, suggested that uh, through Cuba. We have good relations with Cuba. Apparently, Cuba has very good relations with North Korea. Uh, maybe there's a conduit there that can be, can be used. Um, I remember sitting in a, a, a committee hearing in September where, where uh, senior foreign affairs staff were saying, yeah, Korea has... Uh, does not see Canada as a, as a hostile power. In fact, it sees it as being friendly. Um, so maybe there is a role for Canada with North Korea, which may help with our relations with, with uh, the U.S. But when it comes to NAFTA, for example, I mean that's not Tillerson's file. Even if he's going to be there uh, for the foreseeable future, he is not the guy who is negotiating this thing, and he's not the guy who's dictating the terms for it either. And... You know, while he said some encouraging things about NAFTA yesterday, I think they should be taken with a pinch of salt.
1: Well, certainly, because uh, you know the two guys that are really kind of taking the lead on the NAFTA file, Lighthizer and Ross, are they're they're really just aping exactly what Trump's saying about you know America first and and Canada's ripping off the United States, and and that seems to be the company line, not what Tillerson's saying.
0: Absolutely, and you know we've I don't think Canada has done itself great favors with some of the things that it's done. I mean, but these are kind of details. Uh, if you remember the memo that Stephen Harper put out, he criticized Canada for putting too many red lines in the sand, for uh, for getting too close to Mexico, for trying to push this uh, progressive trade agenda, which has gender and, and aboriginal concerns and, and labor concerns and environmental concerns. He thinks all of those things are an impediment to a deal. but. But at the end of the day, if the guy on the other side of the table doesn't really want a deal, it doesn't really matter what your tactics are. I mean, you're trying to strike a trade deal with an ardent protectionist. So, it you know, it seems to me that we're, we're, we're sort of dancing on the head of a pin when we're starting to talk about, has Canada done this, that, or the other right? At the end of the day, it looks very hard to get a deal with this guy.
1: Well, especially, because I, I know you wrote a piece about that a couple of weeks ago, but about some of the the demands or the requests or the suggestions uh, from the, the Trudeau team about this, you know, about fair trade, etc., and, and recognizing women's rights in, in the NAFTA deal and, and, and equity and all of the, and and those are very laudable goals and very 21st century uh, ambitions. But at the same time, I, I, as, as you wrote in the piece, if I, as I recall, John, uh, it's falling on deaf ears on the other side of the table. And as right. a matter of well, fact, that, it, it did with just whatever other negotiation he's tried to embark upon.
0: Right. I mean, the, the what I think I was what you're referring to was the China stuff. Which, yeah. You know, I mean, I was in I was
1: in Beijing and
0: walking into the Great Hall of the People and, and insisting with the Chinese that they do it our way, it didn't go down well. I mean, we had, there was a blatant display of power politics by the Chinese essentially suggesting, you know, we're <laughs> we're the masters here. And the same with Trump. I mean, you're, you're just not going to get him to, to... He's overtly against the Paris Agreement. They've pulled out of that. So on climate change, you know, he reiterated his security uh, strategy this week. Obama had talked about uh, climate change being a security issue. Even trade deals, you know, the TPP was is really, uh, from Obama's point of view, was a security deal, not a trade deal. Um, neither of those things are now on the on the agenda, and we've got a you know a president who who essentially believes might is right that we're gonna they're gonna build up their nuclear weapons and their their military, and that's the way that uh, the game is going to be won. In stark contrast to the to the Canadian uh, uh, foreign policy as Iterated by Christian Freeland back in May, where it might is not right, and multilateralism is the way forward, and big powers can't just throw their weight around. So I, I don't recall in, in all the time I've been covering politics the the Canadian and the U.S. government being as far apart as they appear to be right now.
1: And let's talk about that and and how they're going to deal with that because on the surface, John, I mean you know Freeland and and for the fa- that matter, the Prime Minister. Are, I guess saying all the right things. They're, they're not being contrary to, to some of the stuff that's coming out of the White House these days. You know, that, no, we'll, we'll, we're going to work on this, et cetera, et cetera. But they've got to be concerned. I know there was a lot of apprehension before Trump was sworn in last year about what might happen. But I think a lot of that maybe dissipated when they had that first meeting, and Trump talked about tweaking NAFTA, and what a great relationship he seemed to be developing uh, with Trudeau. They, they liked each other, or so that we were told anyway. But over the last eight or nine months, I mean, they've they've got to start changing gears and understand that uh, this guy's trying to push them around. And in some way, shape, or form, they're going to have to shape their policy to deal with it.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with that entirely. You know, that first meeting in the White House went very well. On a personal level, uh, Trump, you know, he likes rich, good-looking people. So, you know, (laughs) him him and Trudeau got along. But, you know, over time... The, the, the dissonance between the two governments becomes less theoretical and more a reality. And I think that's what we're seeing with, you know, things like the security uh, agenda, which came out on Monday. You know, that's been a year in the making. So we're only really now seeing the, the policy implications of what Donald Trump's been saying all along. Um, you know, another big concern for them must be this, uh, what the, uh, the academic Jack Mintz called the tax tsunami which is about to crash into the global economy. It's the most extensive tax package in 30 years in the U.S. And the Trudeau government is going to have to respond to the lower corporate tax rates, the new rates on investment, um, if we start to see jobs and profits flowing south. Now, they've got their own agenda. I think that agenda is going to be, if not derailed, they're certainly going to have to go into some kind of uh, detour to to accommodate what's happening in the U.S. now because... um, you know, it is the elephant next door. Whenever it twitches or grunts, we are affected.
1: And and that's why I'm wondering just what's happening behind closed doors up in, in Ottawa these days, uh, because they do have to respond to this. And, and you know, the tax thing, which we're going to get into a little bit later on. But uh, it's interesting. I, I was just talking with Vashi Capellas a little bit earlier in the show, John, and she hit her one-on-one with the Prime Minister uh, a couple of days ago, as, as most of the TV networks do, of course, this time of year. And they try to get into some of those issues. And... and she found, as I'm sure you have, the frustration is is that the Prime Minister has pretty much resorted into you know the spin answers, in other words the talking points, as opposed to getting into the substantive issues right now, which, which kind of tells me that, well, that's what I'm supposed to say because that's what's going to get printed and I don't want to tick off anybody in the White House or in the Trump administration right now. But you've got to figure that there's got to be some discussion going on about foreign policy. I, I, cause, and to your earlier point, I mean, there have been times when Canadian and U.S. leaders haven't gotten along. I mean, you know, Richard Nixon didn't like, you know, Trudeau's dad. I mean, they, they couldn't stand each other, and there were some rather acrimonious comments that went back and forth, but the policies were not that different in many instances. Right.
0: I think that's the difference. I mean, that, you know, here we've got two men who could actually probably get along reasonably well as long as uh, it's understood that uh, that Trump's the top dog and, and uh, you know, Trudeau behaves himself. I think that's the way that... Uh, the relationship get a lot could could carry along, but but their ideological positions are so distant. I mean, I think they're they are banking on having talked to some people there that they're banking on that the fact that Trump may want to rip up NAFTA, but he won't be able to because Congress won't let him. Now that's not a universally held opinion. Other people, I think Stephen Harper believes that Trump, if he wants to derail this uh, the NAFTA, then he will be able to do so. Um. You know, if you're, if you believe, it's kind of putting your head in the sand. If you believe that Trump can't do that, then you can, you know, you can sleep at night. You don't need to worry too much about it. Um, I guess we would default to the original free trade agreement, and things would pretty much carry on as normal. But, you know, if this tax package does start becoming a magnet for investment, if NAFTA is ripped up, and and uh, you know, it costs companies to to uh, have their goods cross the border, so they then decide to relocate part of their operations and the jobs that go with it, you've got a, you know, you've got a major problem in
1: your hands as the Canadian government,
0: and I think that that is their major concern, and I don't think they have much clue what to do about it.
1: Well, the problem here is that, you know, when we saw some of the ridiculous things that were coming out of Trump's mouth during the the campaign last year, and and subsequently, I guess, even after the inauguration, you know, John, there was always this this, this line of thinking that, like, he's probably going to get booted out, they're going to find something to do with the Russian thing, he may get impeached, or he's going to quit, he's going to get tired, or the Congress is not going to agree with him. I, I, I think the Canadian government has to wake up to the stark reality that he's not going anywhere, he's going to be there. And he is having some influence, and the tax deal that you just talked about is is a key element to that. And and that maybe you know, notwithstanding the fact that the Republican Congress may not like him, they're going to work with him on this stuff for for the most part. And and we're going to have to deal with those realities and the implications of it.
0: For sure. I mean, you know, I mean, this this tax package is a big win for him. Uh, you know, they've got they've got a soaring stock market. They've got low unemployment, despite the fact that he was you know deemed a bit of a joke when he came in uh you're right he's, he's he's there and he's having an impact and um uh you know i mean i think that we we're, we're we're doing not too bad a job or we as in the canadian government um you know i think freeland's doing all the right things as much as she can do with with ross with with Wilbur ross who's who's in charge of the um uh, the the, trade, the he's the commerce secretary mm-hmm. lightheiser who's at the negotiating table with uh, with Tillerson, um, I think Trump, uh, Trudeau's doing what he can with Trump. I mean, the second visit was was less triumphant than the first, and he he he, he was a bit of a supplicant. I mean, just the body language with uh, you know Trump pointing at him and, and sort of semi mocking him, and, and Trudeau just taking it. He's doing what he can do, but I think that um, substantively there has to be a bit of a Plan B, and and you know the chief uh, trade negotiator was at. Uh, a commons committee a couple of weeks ago, I think, when I was in China. Um, and it didn't sound too much like we have got, you know, we've put lines in the sand to say that we are not going to put up with this in a NAFTA deal, in which case NAFTA may get ripped up. And what do we do then? We do there does not seem to be um, a plan B. And, you know, today in the column, I'm saying maybe we have to be prepared to benefit less from NAFTA than we do at the moment. Maybe some of these red lines in the sand shouldn't be red lines.
1: Which which begs the question: What are they doing about it? I mean, are they formulating a a, a plan for Canada with no NAFTA? Because that is, if not a, an eventuality, it's a possibility at this stage. And and I I don't think that they're naive enough, are they, John, to simply say, well, if it happens, then we'll figure something out on the back of an envelope? They've got to be thinking ahead.
0: Well, but there's only so much you can do. I I think that the China deal was was part of that thinking. You know, we will. Uh, We'll provide an incentive for the U.S. to do a deal because we'll go to China and we'll announce free trade talks. Well, that didn't happen. And I think they should have made that happen. You know, that the fact that that didn't happen was, I think, almost entirely because we went in there too cocky. And Trudeau went in and demanded, These are, this is the way it's going to be. And that's what
1: I was I, wondering. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I was reading your pieces from over there. Uh, and and you know the background because you've written about this and we talked about it on the show. You know when when those things happen, those trips happen. The the the, road, the heavy lifting is done by diplomats and 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 you know underlings long before these two guys even get off the plane. And it's really just a signing ceremony. Uh, clearly, they didn't do their homework, or did they all? And did Russia or did, did the Chinese just pull the rug out from under them?
0: Well, it's possible the Chinese did pull the rug out from under them. But the way it was explained to me was that. Um, prior to trudeau going they had chinese trade department had agreed to these conditions on labor standards and whatever else environmental standards the environmental thing is not such a big issue because they're doing the chinese are already doing a lot on the environment for their own sakes because their cities are are, are, are basically poisoning their own people so but it was the labor issue which was a which became the big issue um, Trudeau believes, I think, that they had a, they had agreement on it, that the Chinese had agreed to it. But I think what happened was that when he sat down with Premier Li, um, nobody had told Li, or if they had, they had not um, gotten his agreement. And I, th- I think that there's a little bit of a breakdown in translation there. People who do business in China tell me that just because somebody nods in a meeting does not mean that either they agree to the terms or that their bosses agree to it, and uh it was may- maybe something fell through the cracks. But certainly by the time that Trudeau met with Lee, there was no deal on the table. And and I know that they went out there thinking there would be.
1: Strange times. It's going to be fascinating 2018, given the, uh, the developments and the scenario that's painted. Uh, great piece, Tea with Tillerson, is nice, but irrelevant to Canada-U.S. relationships. It's in today's National Post. John, thanks as always for the time, and uh, best to uh, you and yours for Merry Christmas. And to you, Bill. Thanks. Take care now. Bye-bye. John Iverson of the National Post.
3: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.